the video. All right. Sorry about that. A little miscommunication there. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Uh, it's near to the back. We're going to be looking into chapter 1 this morning. Um, I'm sure as we grew up, I'm sure as you grew up, you had heroes. How many of you remember some of your heroes when you were a child, when you were a teenager? Do you remember some of your heroes? I came up during the time of the uh, Batman series. you remember the Batman series, the corny Batman series? Where they showed the cartoon, pow, boom, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I grew up during that era. And I'm just going to tell you, I could not wait to come home from school and sit down in front of that television and watch Batman. The only thing that drove me crazy was the fact that it, there was always a part two and you had to wait till 24 hours for the next one. You remember that? Same back time, same back channel. And, and then I got to really looking into this whole idea of superheroes and, and then Aquaman. How many of you remember Aquaman? You remember him? I loved Aquaman. No one else liked Aquaman. None of my friends, they thought he was a nerd. They, they didn't like him. I liked Aquaman. And then as I began to age, I started noticing that these superheroes wore their undergarments on the outside <laughs> of their... And I remember seeing one for the first time in person. It used to be you'd only saw them during cartoons or on TV. And then all of a sudden, I show up somewhere, and there's these costume people. And I started to notice, I'm like, that is disgusting. <laughs> we all had superheroes. I think many of us have had sports heroes. I look at the young girls. I remember when Mia Hamm was coming through, and all the young girls, my daughter came through that time, and all of them wanted Mia Hamm's number when it came to soccer and all those greats. And, and of course, when I came up, I was a Tar Heel fan. I, my heroes were Phil Ford and, and Michael Jordan, who, by the way, is from my hometown. Would you anyway? Anyway. And then the Washington, I can't say their, their other name because it can be offensive. But anyway, the Washington team that's in the NFL. Anyway, uh, my, my heroes there were Sonny Jurgis. How many of you remember Sonny Jurgis? Big old guy. He wouldn't even be able to play in today's league. You know that, right? And then Joe Theismann. We all have these heroes. We, we have faith heroes. I don't know about you, but anytime I read about the martyrs of the faith down through the ages, and, and even today, hearing people who are testifying and professing to be Christians who know that it's going to bring about their demise, they still stand in the face of it. The martyrs, faith heroes, Bible heroes. How many of you remember your Bible heroes? I don't know about you. I still look at these guys as heroes. Elijah. I mean, can you imagine calling down fire from heaven? Can, can you imagine that? Uh, Elijah, Moses, King David, the Apostle Paul. We all have heroes. So look at your introduction. The hero of the Bible is Jesus. He is the one who has provided salvation for mankind through his sacrificial death and victory over death. He's the hero. The whole word, the whole Bible in the scriptures, everything points to him. He is the hero. In Colossians, Paul describes Jesus the hero this way. And this is in the, the message. Uh, it's a paraphrase, but look, look at how, they, how he writes it. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive through Christ. That's the whole idea of I am redeemed. And then he says, think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. 
He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. A conqueror, a hero. And y'all, he did that on our behalf. And so this morning, what I want us to do as we begin our study in 1 Peter, we're going to attempt to do a verse-by-verse study for the next 14 weeks. The first thing I want you to see there as it relates to this hero is the fact that there are the assurances of the Trinity. Now, when you think of the Trinity, of course, we think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, all great works of deity involve the whole Trinity. I want you to think about it. We see the work and appearances of the, of the Trinity in creation. When the Bible says, let us make man in our own image, what's it a reference to? It's a reference to all the, all the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then we come to Jesus' baptism. Do you remember who showed up that day? Of course, Jesus was there. It was his baptism. And, and the Holy Spirit shows up. The whole, uh, God the Father speaks from heaven. All great things that happen in Scripture involved the Trinity. And then we come to 1 Peter, the very part, first part of 1 Peter. And Peter tells us that all, of Trin, all the Trinity is involved in our salvation. And so I want us to look at that. First of all, I want us to look at the Father's sovereignty. The Father's sovereignty. The idea of the sovereignty of God means that he is directing all of creation and all of the activities of the universe including our salvation. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, when he says pilgrims there, some of your translations may say aliens. It, it may say uh, those who are temporary residents. It's this whole idea that those who are in Christ, we're just kind of passing through. Did you know that? If, you're, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this world, in this world, the, the world that we live in, the, the physical reality in which we live in, we're just passing through. And he's writing this to those. And then he, when he says the dispersion, the whole reason there was a dispersion is this whole idea that persecution permeated what was going on in the region during the first century. And as a result, they were running from the persecution into these areas. And there's five areas that he points out right here uh, in, in verse 1. He says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and, and Bethnia. And, and what he's doing, all these are in modern-day Turkey. And he's saying, this letter is to you. And then he says in verse 2, this is where it gets really good. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, why is he writing this letter? Well, they are dispersed. They scattered. Do you know what caused them to scatter? It was the persecution. Nero is on the scene. We, we believe most of the persecution came from the Roman emperor Nero. Of course, we know that he had uh, 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 Peter put to death and, and Paul put to death. But before their deaths, he began to chase down the Christians and had them executed. And that's what you're finding here. And Paul's writing this letter of encouragement to them. And, he, and he's starting to tell them what their whole salvation is all about in verse 2. Elect according to the knowledge of God the Father. The words elect and foreknowledge in this verse is this. Peter is stating that God's election, those who will be saved, is based on foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God just means he has always had an eternal plan for those who were saved. 
Now, let me just say this. We're going to look at this verse in just a moment. But did you know that you were really saved? If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, did you really save before the foundations of the world? That's where your salvation came about. And it was God directing it through his sovereignty. He was directing towards that salvation. The idea of election in scripture, however we know this, is a very controversial concept. It, the reason it was controversial was because it's not easy to understand. Matter of fact, there's a mystery associated with this whole idea of election. Some of you may not realize it, but the denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, there is literally infighting over this whole issue which I think is ridiculous. And I'm going to tell you why. The reason, the, the reason that there's fighting going on in our denomination is because people don't understand it fully, and we never will. There's a part of our salvation that is a mysterious part. There's a mysterious part to it. We can't get our minds around the fact that we were saved even before the foundations of the world. We can't get our mind around that. And, and we're out there fighting about something that is a mystery. The thing we need to understand is that God has given us responsibilities as believers to share his word, to, to take it to Nepal, to take it to the utmost parts of the world. And, and that's our responsibility. We don't need to be looking for doctrine to get us out of that. We need to realize that God is in control. So what does election mean? It literally means to pick or to choose. Election is that act by the divine will of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, God chose to save an individual. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as I said, then you were chosen before the foundations of the world. The doctrine of salvation, let me tell you this, and this is what we need to get our minds around. The doctrine of salvation teaches both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. It teaches both. So, so here's what I want us to look at. Uh, some of you have asked, what in the world's that door up here for? Well, the construction that's going on over there, they put this door in the wrong place. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually a prop to help me try to explain to you what, what is going on with this whole idea of election. Now, on this side of the door, let's just suppose that our salvation is based on what's going on right here at this door. Okay? So on this side, you have what is called human responsibility. Do you agree that, there's, that we are responsible for a portion of our salvation? Yes, we are. Okay, uh, it's, it's a whole idea of free will. God has placed within, in, uh, within every individual a free will. Okay, And so on this side, there's human responsibility. What does the Bible say, John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him. What, what does that imply? Human responsibility when it comes to salvation. Uh, but then you come to Romans chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading with verse 9, but on the screen, I think it starts with verse 11. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. That's human responsibility. That, that's our responsibility when it comes to our salvation. So if this door represents my salvation... The human side of me, when I repented of my sins, when I placed my faith in him, I was basically approaching this door. 
and I was opening this door to something else. Okay, so the, the human responsibility. But then when I step through it, again, this is salvation. I come out on the other side, and guess what? I find out there's something called divine sovereignty, that God was orchestrating it all along. He was behind it all. He was calling the shots. He was pulling it together. And so my salvation. So on this side, I have my human responsibility. Whosoever, I place my faith in you. I repent of my sins. I step through there. I get on the other side and there's a whole different perspective to my salvation. And here's what it sounds like. Let me, let me just read you this. It says this in Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So, so what does it look like on this side of salvation? When, what is my perspective on this side? Well, this is the, the divine sovereignty side. On this side, here's what I've learned. On this side, I learned that I would not even have responded to God if it weren't for the Holy Spirit drawing me to him. You know that, right? The scripture is very clear about that. My, I would have never looked to God unless the Holy Spirit drew me. And so once I get through that portal there and I'm standing on the other side and I'm looking at salvation, it's just a different side of it. It's like two sides of the same coin. You got one side and you got the other side. It's the same thing. It's just like this door. And so I'm standing on, it over on, the, on this side, and I begin to, to learn more about my salvation. And I learn, first of all, well, it's the Holy Spirit that drew me there the whole time. And then when I get on this side, I start to realize that I was saved before the foundations of the world. How many of you, that just blows your mind? But yet over here, I had a free will. Over here, I chose him. Because of his great love towards me, I chose him. But as I come through this and realize and understand my salvation even more clearly, he chose me. So we see two sides of this. Y'all, that's what all the controversy is about. Y'all, you will never get your mind around that fully in your finite mind. There's a mystery that is associated with that. And the thing that we need to understand is we have human responsibility when it comes to salvation. And when we step through that door of salvation and look at the other side, we realize that a loving father, a loving God reached out to us for salvation. So we see both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Now, let me say this. Salvation has two perspectives. From the believer's perspective, he or she is saved the moment he or she calls on Jesus Christ. The moment we repent of our sins, we confess him. We call on him to be our Lord and Savior. That's when it takes place. From God's perspective, salvation is a finished work in eternity past. Again, you, don't, you won't ever get your mind around that. What's the point in fighting over that? Oh, you can't get your mind around it. Another assurance of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit's sanctification. Those who are saved, as I said earlier, are called to God by the Holy Spirit. The only reason you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is because the Holy Spirit began to do a work in your life that brought you to the, to the point of conviction. And conviction is nothing more than this. You saw yourself as you truly were, a sinner. And you saw God as he truly is, as someone who is holy. And there was a problem there. That's what conviction tells you. 
And so as a result of that, God began to work in your life. So 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 2 again. He says, elect according to the knowledge of God the Father. That's the God the Father's role in salvation. In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. That's the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. The word sanctification implies something or someone that, that is or who is set apart. It literally means when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... You, you were taken out of the masses and set apart. You were set apart. Now, some of you could come away thinking, well, I must be special. Well, indirectly, you, you really are. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he chose you before the foundations of the world. He set you apart, and now it's the Holy Spirit. Now, the whole idea of being set apart also means that there's a good work that can come from this. That is sanctification. It's that process of work. The Holy Spirit starts with conviction and continues with transformation. So if you were to say, okay, what is sanctification? What is the Holy Spirit's role in my life when it comes to salvation? Number one, he drew you to God and his love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's the one that drew you, but his work doesn't stop there. It continues in you until you see Jesus face to face. He, he's literally bringing about conviction and transformation. You, underneath that, that's the whole idea of sanctification. Okay? So we see that clearly. Therefore, the Holy Spirit takes the believer out of this world or that world that they live in, the worldliness of it, and places them, the Bible says, in Christ, setting them out of sin and darkness and into righteousness and light. It's a transformation that takes place. The process of transformation also, listen, leads to obedience. That's some of the fruit of the fact that there's a great work going on in you. It's part of the fruit of the fact you've been set apart by God. Look at verse 2 again. It says, uh, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. Obedience is a signifying mark that salvation and sanctification are taking place. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes it this way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the whole idea of being set apart, Christ made it possible. Which God prepared beforehand, that's his sovereignty, that we should walk in them. It's the whole idea of the process that's going on in our lives. The last assurance of, of, of the Trinity is the Son's sacrifice. You see, salvation and sanctification are not possible if there, were, if there were no sacrifice. Now, I don't understand why it had to be this way, but God designed it this way. God basically said there has to be a sacrifice for the sins of man, for the shortcomings of man. And so look at verse one, uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 2 again. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's the Father's role, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, now this phrase is a picture of what was called the Day of Atonement mentioned in the Old Testament. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to present the sacrifice, uh, the, the blood of that animal for the forgiveness of sin. However, this is now not necessary. You do understand that, right? Because Jesus fulfilled what it represented when he died on the cross, shedding his blood on our behalf. So you have a picture of that. Now look at Revelation 1 here on your screen. 
Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That was the, the son's role, that he would become the sacrifice for us. So Jesus' sacrifice, look on your outline, guarantees our salvation, and it also guarantees the benefits of the salvation. Now, let me just say this. Did you know that there, were benefit, that there are benefits associated with our salvation? You weren't just granted salvation. You, you were given something far even greater than that. So, so look on your outline. The guarantees of salvation. Now, the guarantees of salvation all center around one phrase. If you were to look at verse 3, it has the phrase in it, living hope. It literally means something that we can look to. Okay. Now, remember, Peter, through this letter, is offering hope to believers who are being persecuted. The people who, who received this letter first were people who many were running for their lives. They were the ones trying to escape the executions of Nero. They weren't just being made fun of at work because they were Christians. They weren't just kind of being outcast by their family. They were literally being hunted down by a mad emperor. And he's writing this letter to them to encourage them to say, hey, your salvation, listen, God and his sovereign work worked that out. He's working in you now. The Holy Spirit's working. You need to remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid on your behalf. And guess what? That salvation that you have, there's some assurances, there's some guarantees, there's some benefits to it. And he, say, he says this in one phrase, living hope. Now, when you think about it, hope motivates us. It shapes us. It is essential for living. It is the possibility of better. It is sometimes all you have. Have you ever been so low that hope was all you had? You see, that's what we have in Christ. Of course, our hope is not like worldly hope, which is uncertain. How many of you ever heard someone say something like this? Boy, I sure hope it works out. Oh, man, I hope it. Many times... The world is trusting in something that is uncertain. I think many of us, if we are honest, we've trusted in something that was uncertain, at least at some point in our lives. But, but listen to this. Our hope as Christians, as believers in Christ, is in a person which has certain guarantees that come with him. And part of that guarantee is what salvation gives us. So our salvation guarantees four things according to this passage. Look on your outline. First of all, a new existence. It literally means to be reborn. And that's what we're getting ready to read. I think many of us would agree and hope that there's got to be more to this life than our present existence. How many of you would like, how many of you think that way sometimes? Man, there's got to be more to life than just this. You look around, you see the suffering, you see the evil that's running rampant. You turn on the television and, and everything seems to be contrary to God's word. And you sit there, and I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I sit there and I think, there's got to be more to this. Something's got to be corrected here. Oh, it will. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, this, mercy is what motivated God to do what he did. did you, do you know that? His mercy on our behalf. Mercy implies this. 
that God saw something that was miserable. Did you know that's where we were? We were most miserable. He, he saw something that was miserable and he extended mercy to that misery. That's exactly what he did on our behalf. And, and so you see what he's doing there. He has begotten us again. Now, begotten us again literally means born again. It literally means reborn. And it's that whole idea of, of what it means to be born again. And, and, and he goes on to a living hope. This new life we have now, there's hope associated with it. It's not found in the uncertainties of this world. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ, which is certain. It's found in him. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All our hope revolves around Jesus Christ and his finished work. So the believer is reborn when he or she trusts in the provision of salvation provided by God through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Many of you know this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Oh, listen, old things gone. Think about what that verse says. Old things gone. It's an old existence marked by shame, guilt, and condemnation. Those things are removed as a result of what Christ has done on our behalf. But then there are new things discovered. There's a new existence that's marked by a new start, a fresh start, a new freedom from the bondage of sin, a new perspective, living for eternity. And that's what, that's what Peter's trying to write here. He's trying to get them to understand you may be persecuted. They may be coming after you. Your loved ones may have been executed. But you need to understand there's a living hope beyond this world. There is something that is guaranteed beyond this world. The old things are gone. There's a whole new reality. But guess what? The new things also include these next three things on your outline. Look on your outline. A second guarantee of our, of our salvation is an eternal inheritance. It's a whole idea of being reserved. Reserved. The Bible is very clear that we as followers of Jesus Christ are joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs. That is a big deal. A big deal. It means everything that Christ has, we are promised in the next life. It, mean, it also means that there is an inheritance that awaits us who follow Christ. There's some type of inheritance. An inheritance, of course, we know is something of worth that is passed down. It can be monetary or material wealth. It can be a keepsake or it could be a legacy of faith. Those are the things that we have the potential to pass down. But God has something even greater that can be passed down to his son and not only to his son, to us also. Listen to the description of the inheritance we'll receive from God. Look at verse 4. He says, the, the, the death of Christ and his resurrection guarantees, our salvation guarantees this, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, it is reserved in heaven. And look what he says. For you. For you. Again, who's he writing to? Those being persecuted. Those who could lose their life for professing Christ. But guess what? He's not only writing to them back then. He's writing to us today. There's an inheritance 
that awaits us. Peter is reminding those who are being persecuted to look to the new life to come where the uncertainty of life and its riches will be one day replaced by the certain life and riches beyond this existence. The whole idea of reserve there in this context means something certain and guaranteed, listen, with your name on it. With your name on it. That's powerful when you think about it. But that's what our salvation guarantees. A third guarantee that our salvation is unchallenged power. And it's the whole idea of reigning. Now, many of us know this, but we live in a world of uncertainty. Where all power and authority is challenged and will eventually succumb to the challenges. How many of you have studied history? Some of the most powerful nations in the world fail. I mean, you look down through the ages. Of course, we as Americans, we, we almost kind of live our lives as we will never fall. Wow. But they all have. They eventually succumb to the challenges. They always have. They always will. As long as God tarries. It's a guarantee. The uncertainty of the Middle East. So many people look to the Middle East and, and we look and we see all the fighting going on there. And it's almost like, uh, we, we just, oh my goodness, they're fighting in the Middle East. Guess what? They've been fighting since I, uh, uh, Isaac and, and Ishmael. You do, know, you do realize that, right? That battle has been going on. The uncertainty of the Middle East has been going on through all the generations. The uncertainty of possible terrorist attacks. I mean, all this is in our news right now. The uncertainty. I keep hearing these people talking about the markets. Uh, what's going to happen with the markets when, if we have another attack? And, and what's going to happen to this? And what, how will we respond as a nation to this? Every bit of that is built on uncertainty. But y'all, there's a life and a reality to come that will be built on certainty, not uncertainty. And that's what we're finding here in this verse. Listen, listen to what it says in verse 5. Who are kept, speaking of salvation and the guarantees of it, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. There's some guarantees built in here. God keeps his word. That's what this means. God keeps his word and what he has promised and said will happen. We can count on it. Even though we feel like it's being challenged, we can count on it. So here's what this means. There is a spiritual reality beyond our physical reality. Did you know that? Did you know that most people, including Christians, don't live that way? They don't live that way realizing that there's a spiritual reality beyond the physical reality. They don't live that way. They don't think of their life in terms of the sovereignty of God. And he's orchestrating, he's working, and he's doing certain things. Instead, they're all caught up in the uncertainties of this world. And what's going to happen when this happens? And what about my babies? And what about this? And what about that? All this is out there. So the physical reality, we, we know this, we've lived this, is not secure. While the spiritual reality is secure. One of the neatest stories in the Old Testament happens with the prophet Elisha. Not Elijah, Elisha. And it's a very interesting story because what it does is it gives you a glimpse of the spiritual reality that surrounds the physical reality in which we live. Listen to the story. 
In 2 Kings chapter 6, look here on the screen. Elisha the prophet is trying to comfort this young man who is caught up and his vision is on the uncertainties of what he's seeing in the physical realm. And what's interesting, it says, look at Elisha's answer to this. So Elisha answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, how many of you ever look at our fears that way? No, you know what we concentrate on? It's like what Jonathan was sharing a couple weeks ago. We're so caught up in the fears, that's all we see. We're, we're bound up in it. We're, we're paralyzed by it. But, but he says, Elisha says to this young man who's struggling, he's struggling with his fears. There's more with us than there's with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Y'all, that needs to be a prayer every one of us needs. Because we're dealing with the physical reality and there's more behind it. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. Listen to what he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now let me ask you something. Were these chariots and all that surrounded them, were they part of the present reality? Not at all. They were part of the spiritual reality. Y'all, we so many times, as born-again believers, of people who are faith, of faith, we are so many times so caught up in all this stuff, and we're so, I mean, we're sitting there, we're worried. We're, there's armies out there that are fighting many times on our behalf, and they're there to protect and secure. But we're so caught up in the present. It is the Lord that keeps us. You see, our salvation and inheritance are both secure and will one day be fully disclosed, which leads to the, to the fourth thing there, a glorious future, which is a whole idea of being revealed. Something's going to be revealed. Now, I don't know about you, but I wish that when I was eight years of age when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I had to be discipled. I had to, I had to have people. The only thing I knew was I was on this side of the door and I needed to be discipled to the other side of the door. I needed to be able to come through here and see what my salvation really entailed. And, and, and so that's part of good discipleship is when you begin to understand what are the benefits to this salvation, that I was chosen before the foundation of the world, that my salvation means that I'm kept by God, I'm reserved by him. There's something out there with my name on it that he has for me. But not only that, that one day there's going to be a revealing that's going to take place. And boy, you're talking about looking at Jesus in the context of a hero. That's where you really see it. I want you to look at verse 5 again. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The phrase the last time is a reference to the last days. When Jesus comes back, when evil is finally put down, and when our new existence in Christ will be fully realized and revealed. You do understand that, right? The things that we see dimly, the things that we have a hard time seeing, there's going to be a revelation behind all that. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read a couple of verses there, and then we're going to close. But as you turn, here's what you need to understand. God's people are being kept by the power of God and anticipation of the great revealing. In this world, it often seems that the enemy is all victorious, but not so. He is a defeated foe. 
When you look around this world, evil is running rampant. It appears the enemy's winning the battle, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It appears. But he's, a, he's already a defeated foe. The reality of it is coming later. However, listen, the future belongs to Christ and those who follow him. The future belongs to us. The future belongs to Christ. Revelation chapter 19, look at what it looks like. This is the hero here. Verse 11, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who is this? This is Jesus. How do we know that? Because of the description, verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. There's, there's another part of the mystery. He was clothed with a white, with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Do you know what many, do you know, what many commentators say about those who are following? That that is us. I tend to believe that. Based on the chronological the, uh, order of what's taking place here, the context of what's being placed here, we're going to come back with him. And then it says, verse 15. Think about this, y'all. This is now the new spiritual reality that's coming. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that which he should strike the nations and he himself will rule, rule them with a uh, rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And he has, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You, you want to really say what King of Kings and Lord of Lords is? He is hero. Jesus is the hero. So look at the application. The reality of a born-again Christian is based on the assurances of the Trinity and the guarantees of salvation. The guarantees of the salvation. Here's the question. Do these assurances and guarantees characterize your present existence? Where do you find yourself? I mean, are you living like someone... <laughs> who is a child of God? Are you living like someone who, who, was, who, who was chosen before the foundations of the world, whose love extended to you before the foundations of the world, that when he saw you being born there and how you would grow, he was directing it, he was sovereignty working it out, and you came to know him as your Lord and Savior? And then really, here, here's a better qu question we could ask this morning. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? I mean, I mean, you think about a young man, a child, Batman, Superman, even Aquaman, right? You look at your sports heroes and you look and you see the Michael Jordans and you see all the, you see and you think, man, wow. And we teach our kids many times to respect them. But who's the real hero here? The real hero is Jesus Christ. One of the greatest joys we have at our home is we have our grandkids over sometimes. And uh, they'll come to our house and they'll play. And they have, it's amazing what kind of imagination children have. 
And the four-year-old's playing with a five-year-old. And, and, and I saw them just, just on Thursday. And I, as I came home from work, I, I was able to see them kind of interact with one another. And, and what was really amazing is uh, one of them was basically saying, oh, my goodness, uh, this character they pointed out is in trouble. This, they're in trouble. And the other one, you know what he did? He went and grabbed the Jesus figurine and said, it's okay, Jesus is here. He's the hero. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for what it represents. Father, we just thank you for just the fact that you are the hero. Father, we look to this world, and we see all the uncertainties of this world, and I think it causes many of us to struggle. But Father, I pray that maybe someone who walked in here today, maybe they're kind of under the circumstances of this world and under the circumstances in which they find themselves. And Lord, they came here today looking for hope. Lord, help them to realize that there is a living hope. And that living hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ in which the uncertainties can be made certain. The things that seem to be rushing and, and tying us down and holding us up can, can be traded for a fresh start, a new beginning, a new beginning free of guilt and shame and condemnation. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day to come to know you. Lord, help them, to, help them to realize as far as we know from Scripture, there's still something called human responsibility in which we must come to God realizing who He is. Father, if there's someone here today that's never done that, I pray today will be the day they do that. Father, if there's a Christian that may be here today and maybe they're so caught up into what's going on around them and the news is horrifying them and, and, and there's things that are, they're seeing in the world that's terrifying them, Lord, I pray that maybe they'll be just like that young man and, and Father, someone who will care enough about them will come on the scene and say, hey, look, there's a, there's a greater reality than this, than this present reality, than this, this physical reality. There's a spiritual reality that's out there. Father, help us to get our hearts around that. We thank you for what you've done here today. And we, Lord, just pray you have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.